This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and Chapter 8 of the 9-11 Commission Report starts as follows. As 2001 began, counterterrorism officials were receiving frequent but fragmentary reports about threats. Indeed, there appeared to be possible threats almost everywhere. The level of those threats and planned attacks increased dramatically until, in the words of former CIA Director George Tenet, the system was blinking red. Those words, the system was blinking red, became a catchphrase in this country for a situation where the warning signs of a disaster became overwhelming. And yet, Often, we still miss those signs. And today in America, the system is blinking red once again. Numerous scholars, experts, and elected leaders who watch the warning signs are sounding increasingly dire levels of alarm that our politics have become so distorted by anger, partisanship, lies, manipulation, and disinformation, not to mention deliberate steps to subvert American elections, that our system of government, American democracy itself, is in real peril. Now, we've hosted some of those voices on this show before. Amherst College professor Lawrence Douglas, American Enterprise Institute scholar Norman Ornstein, U.S. congressmen like Jim Clyburn, and U.S. senators like Sheldon Whitehouse. But there may be no more widely respected expert on election law and the role of disinformation than Rick Hassan. Professor Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine, and he's co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center there. He served in 2020 as a CNN election law analyst. He's the author of numerous books and articles, including op-eds and commentaries in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Politico, Slate. It's a who's who of the top outlets out there. And his most recent book is Cheap Speech, how disinformation poisons our politics and how to cure it. Rick, welcome to Beyond Politics. Well, uh, it's great to be with you. It's a delightful uh, prospect to have you. I wish we were talking about a more upbeat topic, but I, I wanna start out by quoting from the noted government scholar, Robert Kagan, who wrote in a widely cited Washington Post article, the United States is heading into its greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War, with a reasonable chance over the next three to four years of incidents of mass violence, a breakdown of federal authority, and the division of the country into warring red and blue enclaves. So at the risk of setting myself up from a top-level professor like you for a correction, do you think that that characterization and the introduction that I just gave a moment ago is on target? As you look at the proliferation of disinformation and the undermining of our voting system, how worried do you think we should all be? Well, I'm very concerned that the 2024 election will not be run in a fair way where the winner of the election is actually declared the winner. That could happen through violence. It could also happen in a nonviolent way through manipulation of the really strange set of election rules we have for choosing the president that 
leave room for bad actors to try to manipulate the process. One of the things that we learned in 2020 is that so much of our system for ultimately determining the winner of the presidential election depends upon people acting in good faith and following norms of fair play rather than hard and fast rules that require them to do the right thing. And so unless we make some changes to those rules, and even if we do make some changes, there's a risk of election subversion that the 2024 election results will not reflect the will of the people. And that's something I, you know, even five years ago, never expected to be saying about the United States. Well, that's a really interesting distinction between norms that we rely on and how much we rely on them and the actual mechanics and the gears, the, the underlying laws themselves. And you're actually perhaps best known for your expertise on those laws uh, and the ways that we vote in this country. And I say ways because there are many ways that we vote in this country. So before we turn to your new book, which I want to get into, could you maybe catch us up on the state of elections and uh, state election law as we head into the midterms. Now, you've made a widely cited distinction between voter suppression, which we're maybe all more familiar with, and election subversion. So where do we stand on both of those fronts as of now? Well, so the first thing I would say is, um, if you're thinking about the United States and its election system, you have to recognize that we don't conduct a single election even for president, but we conduct something like 10,000 different elections. Authority for running elections is diffuse. Some of the rules are set by Congress and the constitution. Many of the rules are set by state law, but elections are fundamentally administered in the United States on the local level. And so the voting machines you might use in one county in a state could be different than the machines you use in another county of the state the rules that one state uses for whether or how you have to prove your identity uh, may be different in another state. And so there uh, is just a, a large variety and um, this often leads to conflict, uh, conflict where a local administrative body wants to do something different than a state. So for example, during the middle of the pandemic, Harris County, Texas, home of Houston, decided to have 24 hour drive through, uh, drive up voting uh, during the early voting period. And that was a way of making it easier for people to vote in the middle of the pandemic. The state of Texas didn't like that. Uh, and so they took away the authority of local governments like Harris County to be able to offer that service. So, uh, you know, you, you, you have to come into any discussion about how American elections are run with the understanding that power is diffuse and that courts have a role to play, administrative bodies have a role to play, but uh, at the first cut, it's local uh, election administration. Now you asked me about the difference between laws that might make it harder for people to register and vote, so-called voter suppression laws uh, and election subversion, which is what I talked about at the top of our conversation, which is the risk that the election loser could be declared the election winner. The latter set of rules are rules that people barely pay any attention to because they don't, they don't normally get a lot of attention, such as the rules for how state boards certify the winner of the electoral college vote in the state. So in Michigan, for example, in order for there to be a formal determination that Joe Biden was the winner in Michigan in 2020, there was a four member board 
to Democrats to Republicans that had to sign off on it. Largely ceremonial role. This is what I meant in terms of norms. And um, you had one of the two Republicans abstain and not agree to um, uh, vote that Biden had won. And you had another one who was pressured and ultimately went along with uh, saying that Biden had won because the evidence was that Biden had comfortably won in the state of Michigan. It wasn't all that close compared to some other states. And um, that, that person is no longer a Republican um, member of this state canvassing board because uh, he was forced out because Donald Trump has attacked anyone who has supported the integrity of, of the 2020 election. And so um, laws that um, make it easier to manipulate the process or laws that would foster election subversion, laws that make it harder for people to register to vote are voter suppression laws. And there, I think, the intent of a lot of the laws passed by Republican legislatures is to make it harder for people to register and vote, although they don't always have that effect. And I think they sometimes backfire, backfire both by getting Democrats more uh, interested in voting as a countermeasure and also by suppressing the votes of Republicans, like in Texas, where they've cracked down on absentee balloting. And we know that something like one in eight Texans who voted by mail did not have their ballots counted because of a tightening up of the rules. And I think in a very unnecessary way, and, and I'm sure there were many Republicans among those uh, voters, I think something like 35,000 voters in Texas who did not have their ballots counted during the primary election. Well, I mean, so much to unpack in there. And I, I, I wanna turn to your book, but I will say that first of all, I hear often a kind of retroactive justification of the effect that you just mentioned that sometimes these voter suppression laws have a perverse outcome where Democrats particularly see what's going on and they get motivated to vote. And so what I hear is kind of a Republican justification of like, well, you know, the it turnout turned out okay. So therefore it's like, it's the same argument as like, well, why is attempted robbery a crime anyway? I mean, no robbery occurred. I, that's one. And then the other one, of course, is you alluded to Texas there. And I, I just find it a continually baffling thing that Texas, where Republicans have been in charge of all of the gears of elections um, at, at every level of state government for, I mean, a quarter century, probably longer than many of our listeners have been alive. They're the ones who have kind of led the charge on this post-election set of audits and tightening up of you know, voter fraud rules. And it just, it, it's sort of baffling. Who do they think is really to blame here? But we really should move on because I, I want to get into your book. It's, it's such an important contribution to what may be sort of the number one political topic, societal topic, at least in my mind, going on in recent years. It's, your book is focused on disinformation in our society. And it's, it's described as an informed, and practical roadmap for controlling disinformation, embracing free speech, saving American elections, and protecting democracy. Those are all really important things. So why did you decide to focus on disinformation in this book? Why do you think it's important, not just me asserting it? And what is that connection that you lay out to American elections? Well, before I answer that, let me just respond to your last point about voter suppression and just say that I think that focusing on whether or not laws that make it harder for people to register and vote affect turnout 
um, or affect the outcome of elections, whether Democrats or Republicans win, really asks the wrong question. The question is, is not, um, you know, are these laws harmless because they don't necessarily affect turnout? The question is whether the state has a reason to make it harder for anyone to register and to vote. And the state should have to offer a good reason. And if the claims of fraud and the claims of voter confidence don't hold up, then these laws are just stumbling blocks in front of voters that disenfranchise voters for no good reason. And that's how I would think about those questions. Right, now, right, turning, right. Turning to your point about the book, uh, you know, I, I start off cheap speech by saying that if we had the same polarized politics of today, but the technology of the 1950s, I think it's very unlikely that we'd be in the situation that we're in today, where a majority, a, a, a comfortable majority of Republican voters believe the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen, and where we had an insurrection at the United States Capitol that, that really risks bringing down the entire United States government had those who invaded the Capitol been just a little luckier and been able to get to the leadership in Congress and the vice president and uh, injured or killed those people. And the reason I say that I think the technology had a lot to do with it is just if you focus on the 19 days between November 3rd, when we held our election November 3rd, 2020, and 19 days later, Donald Trump went to Twitter over 400 times, directly making the case false case that the 2020 election was stolen and con convincing his followers of a stolen election, which really undermines the entire edifice of our um, democratic process where losers of an election ex accept election results as legitimate and, and agree to, to fight another day rather than to um, try and contest the election. Uh, he went to Twitter 400 times un in an unmediated way and just could say whatever he wanted. Um, if we were back in the 1950s, uh, no way would channels two, four, and seven, the couple of local radio stations that covered the news and the local newspaper in an unmediated way allow him to repeat himself 400 times. His claims would have been fact-checked. They would have been put in context. They wouldn't have been repeated in the same way. They couldn't have gone viral. They couldn't have gotten into the hands, literally in the hands of all of these voters. I mean, right, we hold our smartphones in our hands. The message from Donald Trump comes directly to us. Um, and so I think that that sort of um, ability to spread false information about elections undermines the electoral process, as does the fact that a, a democratic system depends on voters having access to accurate information about what's true and what's false. And the current social media environment makes it much harder to uh, have a situation where um, voters are able to tell what's true and what's not. And, and in fact, with the proliferation of fake news, of false news sites, um, things that are made to look like your local newspaper but actually aren't, uh, many voters don't necessarily believe the false information, but they discount all information. And, so, and that's a bad situation. It's a bad situation in part because we rely on local news to provide us with investigations into what's happening in local politics so that we can hold our local elected officials accountable. And when the economic model collapses for local news because people don't wanna pay for the newspaper anymore. Um, and uh, at the same time, it's very cheap to produce slick looking misinformation. Uh, the market is failing and we're not giving voters the tools they need to make good choices about how they should vote. I'd like to follow up on the Trump of all this because that's sort of the um, the 800 pound uh, 
elephant in the room, I guess, in this in this whole story. First of all, I just want to comment that your allusion a moment ago to channels two, four, and seven, very familiar to me. That was the channel lineup growing up in New York City, like I did, um, when you had three broadcast channels plus channel 13 to get your news from. But it's interesting. You, you do start off the very first chapter of your book with the following two sentences. You say, the greatest spreader of election disinformation in the 2020 US presidential election season was not a group of Russian hackers operating out of a boiler room in St. Petersburg or a shady political operative deploying anonymous Twitter bots. It was the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. It reminds me of that ghost story of, you know, the someone who gets the creepy calls and they're, they call the police and the police call them back and say, you've got to run, you've got to run. The call's coming from inside the house. In this case, the call was coming from inside the house, from inside the White House. How much is that really a factor in all of this? I, I mean, you were saying a moment ago that if this were the 1950s and we didn't have social media, maybe we wouldn't have such a problem with our current polarization. I wonder if even if we had the current polarization and we had social media, but we didn't have Donald Trump and his willingness to break what you said before are our cherished norms in America, would we have as much of a problem? Is, is he really a big part of the, the, the culprit of what's going on here? So I think that Donald Trump is certainly part of the problem. Um, but I think if Donald Trump retired from politics tomorrow and just spent his last years living out quietly in Mar-a-Lago, uh, we would still have some very serious problems. That is, he unlocked and unleashed some forces in American politics that uh, were, I don't want to call them dormant because we did have the Tea Party before him, but he really brought to the surface um, some cultural tensions and has been able to use misinformation about election integrity as a kind of wedge to be able to um, activate a group of disgruntled, um, millions of disgruntled people into believing these kinds of claims. And um, that serves not only to delegitimize the Biden presidency, claiming that it's illegitimate, much like the Obama presidency was uh, delegitimized on uh, you know, among some on the right, but by the false claims about about the birth certificate. Um, not only delegitimization of that, but also laying the groundwork for potential manipulation of election results in the future, and that is a development that. I think without Donald Trump may or may not have happened. Uh, you know, the delegitimization, you know, would have been something else. It would have been Hunter Biden. It would have been something to try to go after uh, Joe Biden. But attacking the integrity of the election system has moved things to a new level. And he's really unlocked that. And so Trump is not the only one who has been making claims that elections are being, um, are, are illegitimate and elections are being stolen. And while much of that rhetoric um, has come on the right, and especially since 2020 has come on the right, it's not as though the left is immune to it. In my earlier book that called Election Meltdown that came out during the 2020 election, I criticized Stacey Abrams for refusing to call the 2018 governor's race. She refused to say that Brian Kemp had won, was the legitimate governor of, of, of Georgia. And although I think that the way the election was run in Georgia was quite flawed, I think it wasn't so flawed that we could not call uh, Kemp the legitimate governor of Georgia. And I think that kind of rhetoric, whether coming from Democrats or Republicans is quite dangerous.
Rick, we were just talking about the role of this kind of confluence of social media and polarization and the willingness of our former president, Donald Trump, to break all of the long-held norms that we had in our discourse about what we could say and do and what was acceptable and what was not, and how that's created kind of a, a toxic brew that we saw come to a head in the January 6th insurrection. Now, a, a, a key part of that noxious brew is the social media platform and the kind of speech that it enables. So you, you titled your book, Cheap Speech. What does that mean? Why is it a problem? And uh, just to layer too many questions on you uh, at once, given the First Amendment, is there anything that can be done about cheap speech without having it veer into government censorship? So the term cheap speech is not mine. It originated with a 1995 Law Review article by a professor named Eugene Volokh. Uh, of UCLA, who was talking about the in, uh, the upcoming information revolution. Uh, he was writing before Netflix and Spotify, before we'd have smartphones that would let us get literally the knowledge of the world in the palm of our hand. And he saw this as an unmitigated good. We'd be going from a system where there was very little ability to speak to a larger audience. If you didn't like an article in your local newspaper, the New York Times, you could write a letter to the editor you could scream it from a corner, but unless the newspaper chose to publish it, you'd have no way of getting that message out to a period where uh, it's very inexpensive and easy to spread that message. And, and, and that is all true. And that is the positive side of cheap speech, cheap that is inexpensive to um, create and disseminate. Um, but there's a dark side too, as I alluded to when I described Donald Trump's 400 plus tweets about election integrity. Uh, what I'd say is that uh, there is a uh, changed economic environment where higher value of speech like that produced by newspapers is um, harder to produce. The economic model has collapsed. Journalists have lost jobs faster than coal miners. Um, and at the same time, it's easy to produce low valued information, especially disinformation. And they're both political and financial incentives for producing this kind of information that becomes very very valuable for um, those who produce it. And there's a demand for it and the demand and supply feed on each other and it creates a kind of vicious cycle. And so cheap speech, while it has its benefits, it also has these significant drawbacks. And, and because I'm an election law person, I focus on those drawbacks, specifically in relation to running elections that are where the results are accepted and where the election is conducted fairly. And so what can be done about it? Uh, and you mentioned the First Amendment. And in part of cheap speech, I say, before we get to the First Amendment, let's just imagine there was no First Amendment. We still would want to have protection for robust speech in elections. We wouldn't want there to be a government czar that would tell us, okay, uh, what you said is not a fair characterization of what a, po a politician's position is, therefore you can be censored, right? Just imagine the president you like the least gets to appoint the speech czar who gets to decide what you can say and what you can't say. We wouldn't want a system like that. And so with some very narrow exceptions that I described in cheap speech, mainly for foreign election spending, as well as for um, uh, false statements about when, where, and how people vote, like uh, telling people uh, that they can vote by text as we had one person do and uh, who's, who's now been um, charged with a crime for doing so. The exception of that narrow circumstance, I think 
the better solutions and the ones that are consistent with a commitment to both free and fair elections and free speech in elections are those that give voters better tools to be able to make good decisions about how to vote. So to take one example, um, one of the things that's, that's coming online these days are what are called deep fakes. These are manipulated audio or video files that could make it sound like someone is saying or doing something that they're not. So you can imagine a political context, um, a, a fake video of Joe Biden having a heart attack or of Donald Trump saying a racial epithet. You know, you can imagine all kinds of things that could be created that would cause a lot of mischief. And so rather Those than- Those two examples aren't a stretch exactly. Yes, right. Well, and you know, the more plausible that they might be, the more likely it is that people would believe that they're true. Uh, or they would stop believing everything because they know they couldn't believe their eyes anymore, right? Either way, it's not a good situation for ferreting out the truth. And so rather than have a law that says it's illegal to produce one of these videos, uh, which I think would raise some very serious First Amendment problems, uh, I argue that such videos should be labeled as altered. That is that social media companies and others should have to use the best, best available technology to figure out when something is an altered uh, audio video file and label it that way. Then a voter, when they're looking, knows that whether it's a satire or not, it's something that is um, not an accurate representation of reality. Uh, now, a, a good part of my book is devoted to the United States Supreme Court and its jurisprudence about the First Amendment. And I argue that in many circumstances, including the one I just described related to deepfakes, uh, the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence might stand as a roadblock to enacting such a law. That is the Supreme Court under its understanding of the First Amendment, um, which is based upon what I consider to be an outmoded marketplace of ideas approach, might say that this is a kind of compelled speech that is impermissible. And I think that would be a mistake. I think that there's a way to read the First Amendment fairly that still protects robust political speech but that gives voters additional information, such as information about when they're being presented with manipulated uh, audio or video. So that's just one example of the kinds of legal change that I suggest that could be done consistent with the First Amendment to try to help voters make better decisions consistent with their own values and interests, not to push them to believe one thing over another, but to make sure that they have access to truthful information. The two things that really jump out in what you just said are the the use of the term information and the the overall economics model to talk about speech well in economics we use prices in a in a market as really a way of conveying information between buyers and sellers it's the way that people who maybe don't know one another figure out how much something is worth and so when when it comes to speech it does sound like the problem with cheap speech is that the barriers to entry, the barriers to speech. I mean, look, if, if you just said to someone, hey, should there be big barriers to people getting to, to speak their mind? They say, no, that, that doesn't sound great. Well, on the other hand, with no barriers, with, with speech becoming so cheap, you're not conveying information the way you would in a market through price about what is valuable and what is not valuable. And that does lead to all kinds of problems when it comes to misinformation and disinformation. And it's funny, we had the, the noted Dartmouth scholar, Brendan Nyhan on this show last year. And we were talking about this exact problem that with, with speech being so easy and so cheap, it's really hard to fight 
disinformation and all the ways we have that we typically do it, you know, fact checking and whatnot. It, research shows that that just reinforces the falsehoods. And what's what's even worse, and I think you allude to this a little bit in your book, is what's known online as Brandolini's law, which is, um, I can't say this on the radio, the BS asymmetry principle, which says the amount of energy it takes to refute a lie is orders of magnitude higher than the amount of energy it takes to disseminate the lie in the first place. So you were just starting to talk about some of the reforms, some of the steps the Supreme Court could take, or maybe since it's more my background, what Congress could do, what state legislatures could do. Are there practical steps that you outline either from government or even from the private sector that, that we could take to try to fight disinformation and, and kind of give greater value and price to real speech? So um, I mentioned some legal change, like the labeling of deepfakes is altered. Let me talk, because the last part of cheap speech focuses on this, on methods beyond law to try to deal with this problem, because many of these issues are ones where the First Amendment would prevent and, and good public policy would prevent limiting speech in order to help voters make better uh, decisions and have better access to accurate information. So one of the things I suggest is that societies of journalists should voluntarily get together. They should come up with codes of conduct that, for example, you know, uh, this is what it means to be a bona fide journalist. You will use two sources uh, before you make a claim. You will give the person you're writing about a chance to respond and include their response in what you write, those kinds of things. And then these journalistic bodies, again, acting privately, not under the auspices of any government, could then give a, a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval to those entities that follow these. And then that little seal could then be used by social media companies. And it could be a little symbol that appears next to the name of the company. So if it says Los Angeles Times and you've got the little symbol, you say, okay, well, I know they're not necessarily going to get everything right, but they've at least pledged to try because they're going to follow this code of conduct. And I think that would be a way of giving voters some signal as to what is valuable and what is worth um, worth accepting and what's not. And um, you, know, you can imagine fights over whether, say, Breitbart gets the good housekeeping seal of approval or not. And I think those fights themselves would be clarifying. They would be edifying for the public to be able to understand, well, what method does this news outlet use? Why is it that some people claim they should not be considered as bona fide journalists? And I think that that debate itself would help voters understand the difference between reputable journalism and what did you call it? BS. Yes. Yes. That's uh, that's an FCC appropriate way to uh, look. Folks, you could Google uh, the, the Brandolini's law thing uh, you're on your own if you if you want the uh, full uh, PG-13 version. So. I, I just like uh, like many people who kind of have this interest in politics or listening to this show. By the way, I want to commend all the people listening to the show. This is an example of the exact dynamic that we're talking about. We try very, very hard on this show to have high value discussions. We, I, 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 you know, we're very pleased to have the top election law expert in America on this show. And, you know, it's, it's me, I'm a former congressional staffer, usually with a former congressman. We take this stuff very, very seriously. Look, we're very happy to have lots of followers. We're very happy to have a good social media presence and, and, and listenership on podcast. 
But I got to tell you, there's a lot of BS out there that doesn't make anywhere near this kind of effort and uh, has a lot more followership. And it, it's just, it drives me a little nuts. And I think it, it, it should drive people who care about our society and our politics and our elections and our discourse kind of nuts too. And I think that's what's been, that's what's been much in the news and much discussed recently. Jonathan Haidt wrote a, a blockbuster article in The Atlantic that's really been driving a lot of the political conversation over the last week. And he says, look, American politics has become stupid because of this dynamic, essentially because of what you're pointing out, Rick, the, the proliferation of cheap speech through social media. And so he has a whole set of prescriptions, uh, you know, including reducing virality on social media by saying that you only get so many reshares and, and, and retweets before you have to actually cut, cut and paste stuff or, or you know, create it again, forge it again for yourself. And then he also brings it back to more your stock in trade, which is hardening American democratic institutions. Um, you know, he suggests ending closed party primaries like they've done in Alaska and using ranked choice voting. How do you, what do you think about that link back between cheap speech and some of these democracy hardening steps that we could take? What do you make of that specific prescription and, and maybe some of the other ideas that, that you bring to bear in your other writing and in this book? I think there are overlapping problems here. So not all of the problems in American democracy today stem from cheap speech. We had polarization before the rise of social media. It's just that social media has given new tools and added fuel to the fire. Um, trying to solve the polarization problem, uh, I certainly think that using top four primary as they're gonna do in Alaska, which might, might allow um, relative moderate Lisa Murkowski to survive um, a Republican primary, uh, using ranked choice voting might help. Although I think if it were used in Ohio in the Republican primary, I don't think it would make any difference in terms of whether we're gonna get Josh Mandel or JD Vance. Um, and we could end up with Congresswoman Sarah Palin, you never know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that that is, a, you know, that is possible, but you know that election is a special election, and I think there are sixty people running when I last checked. So uh, who knows what's going to happen there? Um, uh, I think making some changes in our electoral system are would be valuable. Um, I think if we were writing on a clean slate, we might not design a system where we have the separation between the president and Congress. Uh, you know, the founders thought of competition between the branches of government as being you know, the, the executive branch versus the legislative branch, when in fact today our politics are Democrats versus Republicans. And so there'll be something to be said for, you know, when Trump is president, let him get all of his policies in place. And if people uh, without you know, resistance from the Democrats, and if people don't like it, they vote him out of office. And when Biden comes in, he gets to put his policies in place, but instead, you know, Biden's policies are stymied by the lack of uh, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate and uh, a judiciary that is increasingly aligned with the Republican Party's interests. Um, so there's a lack of accountability. And I think that's uh, you know, uh, an another part of the problem. Uh, if we had a kind of you know, 
parliamentary system like they have in some other countries. You know, basically Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy would be the head of the government. And then if you don't like it, then, you know, vote them out. Um, I think that kind of system would probably be more suitable for the United States, except we have this long history in the United States of this divided government, and we're not going to get rid of our model of governments. And so we're looking for second best solutions like ranked choice voting and, and primaries. And so, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the House was seen as kind of a, the House of Representatives was seen as kind of this um, pit of polarized politics, but the Senate was seen as a more genteel deliberative institution. And, you know, certainly listening to Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley over the last few weeks, I certainly didn't get the sense that the House is, the Senate is any better than the House at this point. So we've got a lot of problems with our politics. The book, Cheap Speech, deals with one aspect as an important part, but it's not the whole story. And there's a lot that we need to do to try to deal with these problems going forward. Although one of the things that I think connected Jonathan Haidt's article and, and your book and, and everything we've been discussing here is that that kind of connection between the system we use, the, the kind of dual, as you say, in practice, it's a dual party, it's a two-party system. It's set up under the constitution to be a three-part government. But the connection between that and the current dynamic in social media and with disinformation, where really it is sort of a viral race to the bottom that empowers and enables the most activist segment of each party. So really, you know, five years ago, I think the dynamic that, that analysts were concerned about was more on the right, that you were much more afraid in most Republican primaries, more because of gerrymandering and sorting and all these other dynamics, you're much more worried about the competition in your primary than you were in the general election. And so there was really diminished or no incentive to play to the middle because it, it, it had become kind of a, look, we're going to get the turnout we're going to get. And so if you can just fend off challenges from the right, you're all good because you're probably in a protected district or in a relatively safe rural state where Republicans tend to thrive. Increasingly, we're seeing that dynamic among the Democrats as well. And so it, it does seem to me that we either have to fix sort of the social media dynamic as you try to outline some steps to do in your book, or we have to fix the mechanism by which we, we hold elections and, and get people into office or both. Otherwise we are kind of stuck in this doom loop where it becomes a competition in each party for who can capture the activist interests on the far extremes. And there's nothing, there's no incentive to play to the bulk of where most Americans are, that kind of 85% of the silent unhappy majority. I, I, I mean, does that, does that resonate for you as well? It, it, it seems like you're right, it's multifactorial, but we're kind of getting squeezed between those two pressures. Yeah, well, you know, we talked about the news media as being a kind of intermediary that has been lost in this cheap speech era. But your question uh, reminds me of the point that it's political parties as well that have been squeezed out as intermediaries. So think mm. about someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene or AOC, right? In the past, a kind of junior member of the house would be dependent on house leadership from funds. They, they'd be kept in line. Uh, they would be, um, 
loyal soldiers to the party in order to move up in the ranks and gain power. Today, because you can get your audience, you can go directly to voters and it's become so cheap to ask for fundraising, right? So in the past, if you wanted to fundraise, you have to send out direct mail, which is quite expensive. Um, you know, target audiences, send them, you know, spend $5 to maybe get 10. Um, now you can basically set up uh, a website for virtually nothing and get $5 contributions from lots of people. And it creates an incentive to be loud and maybe to be extreme because that's what gets the clicks. That's what gets the eyeballs and that's what gets the money. And so uh, demagoguery is rewarded in a system where people can run for office and not depend on party leadership. And you know, so one of the things about, one of the supposed benefits of the American two-party system is that the two parties are big tents. They moderate more extreme voices within their parties. And cheap speech allows an avenue for less moderate people to be able to gain a louder voice. And, and that too is not good for our, our society. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned the dynamic about fundraising because this is a little hobby horse of mine that I've been meaning to write about for a long, long time. I, I don't, I, I was speaking to a high level campaign manager on the Democratic side for a US Senate race that was a high profile, um, kind of off the record a few months back. And this person was sort of dismissing the impact on people's kind of psychology, political psychology of fundraising solicitations. I don't understand why that form of communication would have no impact when we believe that all other forms of communication do have an impact. And as you say, all the incentives align toward greater and greater extremity. Look, on campaigns, I've written fundraising letters and emails, and I know what gets the dollars back is more extreme, more incendiary, and basically saying, look, if you don't elect my gal or my guy, then the devil is coming into this office and they're going to come steal your children. And that's what gets the money back. And now we are all exposed to this online, in social media and via email and via text 24 seven. The number of text messages I get is, is absolutely insane. So anyway, I, I profoundly agree with your point. Let, let's just close out on, I'll give you kind of a lightning round question. We had uh, the third ranking member of the House, Jim Clyburn, on the show about a month ago, and he predicted that we were going to get some kind of electoral reform done in the House. You monitor this as closely as anybody in America. Are you nearly as bullish that we're going to get something done before 2022? And if so, what do you think it might be? Well, Democrats tried on their own to get voting rights through. And because there's no um, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate and because there aren't enough Democrats who would create another exception for the filibuster, that legislation is not going to pass. But there is talk about anti-election subversion legislation in part that would attack the Electoral Count Act, the rules that Congress uses for picking the Electoral College winners. And um, I'm, hope, I'm, I'm hopeful because there are some moderate senators on both the Democratic and Republican side who are working on this. And I think this is the last good opportunity uh, for this to happen for quite some time. It's very likely that Republicans take over the House of Representatives in uh, the next election. It's hard to see Kevin McCarthy, who is um, dependent upon Donald Trump for his political power, um, uh, agreeing to anti-election subversion legislation. Uh, Rob Portman will be gone from Ohio, replaced most likely by uh, a, a Trumpier 
kind of Republican. So this is the moment. I'm hopeful something would happen, but uh, in these polarized times, uh, you know, I'm not bullish about any particular piece of legislation passing. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see. Wish we could end on a more hopeful, upbeat note, but I do want to commend the book Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It to absolutely everybody who's listening. Rick Hassan, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Politics. It was great to be with you. 